podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Well, it was nice while it lasted. Positive goal difference, that is. Manchester United back to naught in goal difference and perhaps back to zero chance of finishing in the Premier League's top four after a late 2-1 defeat at home to Fulham. An ever so rare victory for the Cottagers at Old Trafford. This comes in a week of great excitement and hope for the club. So Jim Ratcliffe, Ineos and Trawlers Limited were confirmed as co-owners of United, bringing with them ambition, vision and relieving frankness as well. So despite the results, a very very warm welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast. I'm Harry Robinson. Jack Tate is with me as always. Thank you for joining us. As well as dissecting that Fulham defeat, we'll play guest to player, give you the academy briefing, consider Ratcliffe's early statements and how that fits into the historical context of Manchester United and its FA Cup week. United travel to Nottingham Forest on Wednesday night. Will Eric Ten Hag have his Mark Robbins moment? We'll preview that game at the end of the episode. Let's begin. Jack, we're sat here recording on Sunday afternoon. I've got the very early stages of the EFL Cup final playing just at the side of me. It's remarkable, isn't it, to think back to roughly a year ago when we were in this final playing at Wembley Stadium and all of the hope that came with February 2023, defeating Barcelona over two legs, beating Newcastle to win a first trophy in five years and everything seemed very rosy. Fast forward a year and once again, there had been a little bit of stability and some good form and some, certainly some good results and some good moments. But that uh, that that kind of hope and expectation that Ten Hag will be here longer than till the end of the season seems to, seems to decrease with that performance on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, it all felt so different a year ago. Different not only to how it does now, but different to how it has done under previous managers when we've had little bits of false dawns. And yet I think this feels entirely familiar to anyone that's been following Man United for the last six or seven years. It's the classic, you know, manager has an okay season, spends a lot of money in the transfer window. Those transfers don't pan out. And then with a lack of identity, when results start not going your way, there's very, very little to hold on to at the club. And you know, we'll get into more of the specifics of, of why we lost this game and how it came to be. But I think there's just a feeling of, I think almost a bit of hopelessness at how similarly things seem to be playing out under Ten Hag to how they have under previous managers. And probably the only sort of contrast to that is obviously the new ownership structure and the things we're hearing from Jim Ratcliffe do feel meaningly different, albeit it remains to be seen how that actually plays out on the pitch. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think I think there's obviously a lot more certainty in terms of ownership now, and it's fantastic that that's gone gone through, and we've got that certainty, and it's we've been waiting for it for nearly two years now. But there remains lots that is uncertain. The future of Old Trafford has dominated the the headlines this week, but also the possibility of Ericsson Ag not being Manchester United manager beyond the end of this season. Add into that the furore around United's kind of sporting director or football director or director of football, whatever you want to call him, potentially Dan Ashworth if that happens. So there's all these still things that are still very uncertain and that are very, very significant to the the short term and long term future of the club. So We've got that certainty, but there's still the others. And, and I think there is an interesting kind of contrast in emotions. See, for me, I don't feel that hopelessness because I'm I'm pretty confident that uh, maybe United won't win the league or the Champions League in five years' time, but I'm confident at least that the, the direction of, of progress will be upwards over the next couple of seasons, even if there's a, a few hurdles and, and bad periods along the way. So, I don't, but I... I 
I completely understand why, yeah, it, there is that. It's, it's this kind of weird contrast. You're absolutely right. I, I thought this was interesting and perhaps it was because it was about the stadium I was in for the first time. I'm normally, as, as regularly as you know, I normally stand above the tunnel in the Stratford End every so often due to the slightly weird nature of my season ticket. Uh, I'm in J stand as well. So the opposite corner. And this was the first time I was stood there since the Brentford game in October where Scott McTominay scored two goals to win it late on for United. So maybe that's, and it was a sunny Saturday 3pm game. So maybe that's the only reason that I'm drawing this comparison, but I was standing there even even in the first half and bits of the second half thinking, this feels quite similar to Brentford in that United have been rubbish, but in those final 10 minutes, we we could have won it. And I, I, I maintain that. I think they were, they're fairly similar. But this time, the chaotic kind of playing with fire football went against us. And if you're Eric Ten Hag and this is the way you set United team out, you have to take the rough with the smooth in, in that sense, or you have to change your style, which we'll get onto. But do, do, you, do you think the similarities with the Brentford game is, uh, is a fair point? Or is it just because I, I happen to be sitting in the same seats? No, I think it is, especially the way the game ended. I think, to be honest, it's also not really that different to some of the games we've had recently. It felt... Yeah. To be honest, somewhat similar to the Spurs game at Old Trafford, where, you know, in that game, the only difference was we we buried one of those early chances that we had, which, you know, if one of those Garnacho cold shots from the edge of the box after you know, he had a, a few of them between sort of 25 and 35 minutes goes in, probably looking at a fairly similar game to how things played out against Spurs. It, this is what we've been saying for a few weeks now, despite the, the positive results, which have been fun, that, you know, United are always kind of living on a bit of a knife edge because we don't have... Much we're not creating sort of a, a buffer for ourselves in that our the, the general level of our play is not that much better than any opposition that we that yes, we face, and, often and so worse. things sort of have to go our way to for us to win games. If I can explain this a different way, if you're uh, comfortably better than the opposition you're facing in the way that you're playing, things can go against you and you'll still win just because of the, how dominant you are in the game. But yeah. United don't have that at the moment, and so if a couple of things don't go the way that we want them we're screwed <laughs> and that I don't really feel like that is what happened against Fulham necessarily I don't think we didn't have it I didn't think we had bad luck or anything but we're just not creating any sort of dominance in the game at any point and so and we're just so open defensively yeah and and for most of the recent games we've kind of begun our conversations around around them even after winning against Luton and Villa etc saying is this sustainable is this actually a sign of good form or is this just a, well, it, it obviously is a sign of good form. Is this a, a true indicator of kind of improvement? And I think the answer has generally been no, but I can see why it's being successful for now. Well, and, and also the the entire time, like I go back a week, you we asked about previewing the Fulham game. You asked me if I was confident and my yeah, response, yeah. this has been our response whenever we've said why are United winning these games was, I'm confident we'll score goals with that front three. Yes. And obviously that front three couldn't play together now. And I don't think the reason we lost this game necessarily was because Hoyland wasn't there because our general play, forgetting that end of the pitch was was terrible throughout. But it felt like we I could do, play badly. In fairness, I, I think we would have won the game with Hoyland playing, but that's not, it, first of all, it's not an excuse, but also it's just, it's just not good enough. You, you can't be that reliant on on your twenty year old, yeah, twenty uh, yeah, one year old centre forward who you didn't expect to play every game when you signed yeah. him. And I think the thing with that front three is with how well they were playing was it allowed you to play quite badly and still be yes. with a chance of winning games. Yes, the probably most damning statistic and perhaps most representative statistic of of the way that United are playing is the fact that we've now 
faced more shots on our goal in the Premier League this season, 435, than any other team except woeful, woeful Sheffield United who have been spanked time and time again. Uh, and if you look at it just since the turn of the year, which is really when this slightly different style of play has, has emerged, very transition heavy, very chaotic, we're giving up, we're facing, and Anna is facing on average 20 shots per game. It's just, that's why we asked the questions about is this sustainable? And at times we've, against Fulham, we had 21 shots. Against Luton, we had 21. Against Villa, we had 17. Against Wolves, we had 21. So we are also having a lot of shots ourselves. But the nature of playing like that is sometimes you're going to win games in a tight way, like 4-3 at Wolves or 2-1 at Villa or 2-1 against Luton, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes you're going to lose them. I, it's been a statistic that we've I've heard floating around quite a lot in the last couple of weeks and to be honest it, it it's quite surprising when you hear it but then it it does line up with everything that we're seeing week in week out I mean this team just cannot stop opposition from getting into good positions no matter who we play against you know it's not as if all of those shots are coming you know from a couple of games where we've been absolutely dominated it is every single week even in, in our good performances teams are creating very very good opportunities against us consistently. I, As strange as this is from that statistic and the fact that we've conceded a lot of goals this season, I actually think Andre Anana is having a fairly good season. He's not been amazing. In the Premier League, in, yeah. In the we, Premier League, to yeah. Fair, we had this conversation recently, didn't we? It, it's In the Premier League, he's generally been really good yeah. with a few questionable moments. It was in the Champions League where it was, it was, yeah, it was criminal. Yeah. I mean, the reason, not the only reason, but the main reason United aren't in European football anymore is a series of absolute howlers yeah. from him in, in European football. But it's just, it's, it's not something I think that you would ever expect from a team that is trying to reach, you know, the, the top three, top four of the table that your goalkeeper could be having a, a fairly good season in the league and you've still conceded this many goals and this many shots. It's we And there's, there's just no, there's no resistance at all. And we talked about it last week. I can't remember if it was in the patron Q&A or in the main episode, but we said about how is this sustainable? And the comparison that we could sort of draw was the Real Madrid team from the mid-2010s that won all those Champions Leagues and did it despite not looking like a particularly great side, but they would find a way to win through some great moments by their really talented attackers and they would have these backs-to-the-wall performances where they could keep teams out despite being under constant pressure. And we said the only way that United can ever get close to replicating that is to start is to somehow become very, very good defensively. It's because just, the problem well, with playing it's, like that... It's the kind of basic fact is if you want to play like this, you have to be really, really, really good at it. Whereas yeah. some other styles of play, you don't have to be like the best in the world in almost every position to have success with it, which United obviously aren't. Yeah, I mean, if you if you try and play like that and you concede, if you concede more than one goal, it becomes extremely, extremely difficult for you to win any games. I saw some comments and, and heard a few people saying that there was kind of a lack of structure or, or lack of shape to United's team. And it can, it's very easy for it to feel like that when you see a performance like that. But there was structure and shape. It just... It's just one that probably I think we both disagree with. There was a, and, and it sounds mad because it is mad. There was a 2-1-7 <laughs> formation in the first half and second half for quite a lot of the time. Two defenders back, Casemiro in in the middle by himself and then set a, a line of seven, not completely straight, a kind of curved line forward. I thought this is, this is it just, yeah, well, yeah, I'm lost for words because it, it's it's just really strange and it, it, it crowds the talented players 
it leaves massive gaps between kind of three parts of your team, defence, midfield and attack. It, it doesn't play to the strength of Bruno Fernandes because people are looking for his runs rather than him being able to look for their runs. It leaves Casemiro massively exposed. It leaves your centre-backs very exposed. It's It means when you do concede possession, which I mean, any team will, but we are pretty bad at anyway, you're suddenly left with a, a kind of... Uh, an emergency situation rather than oh it's okay we've lost it we're, we're going to get it back and, and what's frustrating is some performances we have had that ability to control things a little bit better and maintain and kind of have waves of attack we spoke about after the West Ham game but generally we're, we're very much the opposite and yeah that space is the space and, and setup was fairly baffling yeah I, I think my, my biggest issue with the setup was our right-hand side. So you play Forson over Anthony, which I don't have a problem with at all. I think Forson deserved this chance and Anthony clearly doesn't based on everything we've seen from him this year. So you have Dallow and Forson on the right-hand side. Dallow was coming inside a lot, which is a, something we've seen fairly often over the last month or so. Going back to, I think it was the Newport game, the first time I noticed it really regularly. Dallow would come inside and try and be an extra body in midfield. That's fine. What I didn't understand was... You already have your right back pushing in field. Forson was then also coming inside a lot, which I don't think was him sort of, you know, doing his own thing. That seemed like a concerted well, plan I, because I there were times where, that he, is, where he and Rashford Yeah, but that is very switch. much his style of play. He's not a winger. And when he has played wide for... No, I, I know I know that from when I've, when I've watched him in the U team, but when he and Rashford would switch momentarily, Rashford would do exactly right, the yeah. same. And so then you end up with both of your players on the right-hand side are coming inside a lot. You've got no width on the right-hand side, which ends up meaning that so often the ball would get cycled out to Varad in the right centre-back spot. He's receiving the ball with Muniz or whoever else from Fulham's attacking line, closing him down from the centre of the pitch, forcing him wide. And where the normal pass that you'd play to either the right-back or the right-winger just isn't on because they're in central midfield. So then Varad is either getting dispossessed because he's not the greatest on the ball anyway or he's having to, to go long to, in a team where we don't have a Hoyland-type player up front that can actually win some of those duels. It, it was it was baffling to me what we were trying to do. I, I Still now, I don't really understand what the plan was. And even I think Ten Hag's stance on Anthony, I think is, I, I, I said, I don't disagree with Anthony being dropped now and going down the pecking order. But I think the way in which it's happened kind of speaks to Ten Hag's confusion. Anthony was almost undroppable for months this year, this season. And all of a sudden, it seems like he's gone from almost undroppable to... Yeah fourth choice on the right on the right side you yeah. know Ahmed came on ahead of him yesterday yeah. Forson obviously started ahead of him Garnacho's clearly ahead of him when everyone's fit I have no problem with Anthony being fourth choice to make that clear but how do you go from I'm going to play you for three months straight no matter what how you perform to there's actually three players suddenly ahead of you it just speaks to a manager who is for my money kind of lurching from one thought to another without any real idea of a long-term plan of what he wants this team to be. Which I think links to, I think, the general feeling of frustration and kind of uh, disappointment because, as as we were saying at the start, the League Cup final is on now. A year ago, we were in such a, a positive feeling about Ten Hag and about United and, and about this squad. A general feeling, and this goes back to when he was first appointed as well, that in Ten Hag we expected a, a a really tactically astute manager who would not only be able to kind of put his own identity on this United team and 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 improve the the squad and the club, but would also be able to adapt. And I think we have seen some really good 
games from Ten Hag. But at the moment, it's that frustration that is, yes, the injuries are really bad and really unfortunate and really disappointing and uh, whether there needs to be an improvement in terms of United's medical department or sports science or, or the way that they train is not for us because we don't know what goes on behind the scenes. So I, I, we'd be speaking in an uneducated way. It's unfortunate, but you want to see some some adaptability that can still generate good results. And the results we've seen recently have, have not, I don't think, been kind of in- incredible, surprising tactical plans that help United adjust best to this injury crisis that's been going on all season. And again, with Hoyland out, you didn't you didn't see anything like that. There was clear confusion. Rashford and Forson are very different players. So the idea that they can swap mid-game to any great effect is is odd. The idea that the front three can play in quite a similar way to when Hoyland there is, it, it's all, it, you're just left feeling at the end of games. Oh, is that... Is that all you could muster, Eric, really? And little and little things like if you want Rashford and Forson to switch, okay, but why would you then not put Rashford on the left and Garnacho on the right? Yeah. When we've seen in last weeks that they both play much better there. There were long stretches of that game where we ended up with Rashford on the right, Garnacho on the left and Forson through the middle, which makes no no sense really based on everything that we've seen in the last few, yeah. few months. Yeah, the, the system and, and the idea that Tarag is putting on this United team, as, as I've said, can create games and results like this. But you also then have individual moments when you see kind of senior players, leaders like Casemiro, who at one point seemed to try a back heel with only two defenders back and suddenly Fulham attacked and Anana had to make a good save. And there is, there again, of course, there's always nuanced to all of these things, but there is that nuance to it, isn't it? That while... We're, we're left very uninspired by the way United are playing. There's also these moments of, of, of madness from senior players sometimes where you think, oh God, that's, that's not helping either. And ultimately that comes down to the manager to stop that happening and create a system where it can't happen. Or if it does happen, then United can recover much better. But it is frustrating when you see moments like that. Yeah, massively. And look, I don't, obviously this isn't all on Ten Hag. There's a lot of mistakes that got made by the players and have been made by the players all season. And they obviously need to take accountability for that. But it also shouldn't be the case that, as you said earlier about the sort of defensive structure that we have in this sort of 2-1-7, it shouldn't be the case that when Casemiro loses the ball, it's suddenly, I mean, there were, at one point we had a four on four against two, four Fulham players running at our, to our two defenders. And luckily they spurned the chance in the first half. I think it was on where Iwobi ran through and, and put it wide with his right foot. It, like it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that that easy to to get through us. And so, yes, you know, Casemiro shouldn't make that mistake, but the structure of our team should also be better that he has better options when he gets the ball. And that if we lose it in midfield, it's not immediately that you know that hideous For the man situation. Who effectively introduced the term rest defence to English football. It's pretty extraordinary, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. I remember John McKenzie, our, our good friend, who's been on the podcast before. He, he loved how much Ten Hag mentioned rest defence when he first came to England. But I don't think he'd be very impressed with the actual rest defence that we're no. showing. Yeah, it's a, an eclectic mix of tactical ideas, it seems. And then when you watch that as a fan who doesn't dedicate their time to kind of understanding all of that and leaves it to the professionals, it just looks like a mess. <laughs> That's what it does. And it is a mess. What I think what we really need to know is, uh, we kind of alluded to this last week, is this, does Ten Hag see this as a, I've got a load of injuries. I've not got all the players I wanted. Some of the players I wanted aren't as suitable to this, to the Premier League as I thought, like Anthony and, and Amrabat maybe. This is the best way I can think of to get results and success for United up to the end of the season. Is he thinking that or is this his vision 
long-term for United. And if it's the latter, you're a lot more concerned than the former, aren't you? But but we don't know that. Yeah, 100%. I think, I think there's three big questions that Ten Hag needs to answer. Two of them you just mentioned there. Is this sort of the end state that he imagines? Is this just something he's doing because of all the injuries and just to sort of get through this period? But then also, I think whatever the answer to those two is, if the answer is, actually, this is how I see, this isn't how I see this United team going. Eventually, I have other plans for how I want to see this team develop. I think the the bigger question is also, is he the right man and is he capable of making the team get yeah. to the point that he wants yeah. them to get to? Because even if we think his ideas are right, if he's if he doesn't show us any evidence that he's capable of actually coaching this team to that point, it doesn't matter. Yeah, but for all of this, there is the kind of key quote of the week from Sir Jim Ratcliffe, which is when he was asked about Tanag's future and who would be manager. He said, "We've seen lots of successful managers here, and when all of them don't succeed, you have to think it's the environment that's not right." rather than the specific manager. And so that has to influence what what we're thinking and saying for the rest of the season. So I'm still very much in a boat of see what Tenar can do before the end of the season. But yeah, it's uh it's not great. And what's what's that there is determination there from these players, unlike when the Rannick season fizzled out and I don't think generally it's an effort problem at United. Maybe there's a lot of misguided effort, but that's different. But you saw at one one Anana, Bruno, Dallo a few others kind of trying to get the crowd going. I I hope this result doesn't pop that bubble and lead to a season fizzling out. I was just going to say, I, th- I think if, especially if we lost to Forest in the FA Cup on Wednesday, yeah, I think it's that a it could happen. Yeah. I'm also thinking that the, another period just comes to mind, the Van Gaal time when we had a lot of injuries, but he managed to bring young players into the side and get, fantastic results players who yeah I remember didn't going make didn't we, we won at the Emirates didn't we with a with a back three of like I think it was Smalling Blackett and McNair with actually young left back yeah and then obviously we also won at Old Trafford in the, yeah. when Rashford scored his his double but a lot, I think I think why yeah, it's relevant yeah, yeah. is that most of those young players who came in I mean a few of them were medium term Rashford was obviously long term for some of them it was one or two games they played and that was it but he made it work and that's kind of what you want from Tanag at the moment and, and that's not really what we're, we're getting. Right, let's have guess the player clue one. Three clues during the show. United player or staff member past or present and I'm setting the clue for you, Jack, this week and your first clue is I made my Manchester United debut age 17 in 1971. I made my United debut age 17 in 1971. Oh, okay. Uh, well, we're looking... I guess right at the end of the Busby era. I mean, I, de- I definitely need more clues, but <laughs> helpful to know the time frame that we're looking at. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. A final few things on the Fulham game. Amari Forson's debut was uh, hard. Yeah. I felt, to be honest, I felt a bit sorry for him at, at times during the game. Like I said, he, he was actually taking up some, some quite good positions in the middle of the pitch. There were countless times where Maguire or Casemiro would have the ball and Forson was take, picking up some good spaces in between the lines, wanting them to kind of fizz the ball into him so he could receive it on the half turn and, and play forward or lay it off to Bruno Fernandes. And he just wasn't receiving the ball almost every time. And I said, I, I was just, I listened to Paul Merson after the game as well. And he was saying the same thing, that he felt Forson was let down by senior players. And I, I, I tend to agree, to be honest. I just don't think he was ever really given a realistic chance to thrive in that game because of the way that we played. Now, yeah, you could say, you know, that really, really good young players find a way to look good in, in short moments, but 
I think the kind of player that Forson is, he's not a Garnacho type winger that's no, all yeah. about sort of dribbling and beating your man where it's very easy to stand out even in a couple of moments in a game. That isn't the type of player that Forson is. And so I, I, I was watching, I could see him getting frustrated as the first half wore on. He got a little bit more involved as we had a, a decent you know, 10 minutes or so before the end of the first half. But I, I, I felt like I was just watching a player who understandably was getting annoyed with teammates because he didn't feel like he was his, his sort of good in the ability that he had wasn't being allowed to be showcased. Yeah. And that kind of links to the, the point we're making about thinking back to that Van Gaal time where the advice he gave to Rashford when he played was just stick between the posts and see what you can do. Whereas with Forson, he had, he had like two or three different yeah. roles in this game. It was, it was complicated and, and didn't play to his strengths. And you just thought, I kind of understood if he was going to play centrally and then Tenag was creative and made United play differently because Forsen's such a different build and style of player to Hoyland. But that's not really what happened. So yeah, I did feel sorry for him. He he was fine. It wasn't great. It but. just, what was strange to me was that like Dallow's role has really changed since Garnacho has come into the team on the right. And I, and I don't know if that, I don't know if that's causation there. I don't know if his role has changed because Garnacho has been playing on the right or if those two separate things happened at the same time. But when Anthony was in the team, Dallow would stay much wider and he tried to offer that overlapping run, which is great because when you've got a winger that comes inside, he's going to create all that space. It then seems like we've shifted away from that with Garnacho playing on the right. Dallow's come inside more, again, makes sense. And it, it just felt like we didn't shift back when we had Forson, who obviously, again, different type of player to Anthony, but at the same time takes up some fairly similar-ish positions. His starting position is much more central than Anthony tends to st- start wide and then bring the ball inside, whereas Forsen just stays inside more. But we just needed Dallow on, on, the, on the outside, giving him a bit of an option and giving us a better option when we had the ball in defence and, and deep in midfield. It just felt a little bit confused. Like I, I backed the decision to start Forsen. It just felt like we didn't adjust, like, like you were saying, we didn't adjust the way we, way we were playing to suit what he was trying to do. Yep, agreed. Okay. Let's talk the other side of things at Manchester United this week. By the way, before we move off the Fulham game, just quickly, I was very impressed uh, with the performance up front for Fulham by of Muniz. Yeah, I thought he was really, really good. I I think United could do a lot worse than him as a backup striker. I'm sure he'd be massively overpriced buying someone from inside the Premier League, but he was on loan at Middlesbrough last season, I think, sort of come out of nowhere and he's keeping Brohai out of the team there now. I thought he was really, really good. Yeah. Yeah, uh, probably the only other thing to say, Ahmad was fairly bright when he came on and I'd expect him to start against Forrest now. Yeah. Which is which would be good because it'd be lovely to see what he can do. Yeah, let's talk about the, the other side of things. So Jim Ratcliffe's becoming co-owner of United has been confirmed. He's various, various, many interviews uh, were generally very positive, I thought. Did you, would you agree? Yeah, I think it was a lot of good stuff, a lot of what we want to hear really. Yeah, yeah, he knows he knows the right things to say. Uh, he's got a very good PR team and uh, Paddy Harvison, who was director of communications at United in the early 2000s and later worked with the royal family, is involved in that. So it's um little surprise that the, the right things are coming across. That being said, I was with someone who works for United this week who has spoken to Ratcliffe a few times and also spoke to representatives from the other bidders, the Qataris, but also Elliott Group and a couple of other hedge funds and various other other bidders right at the very early stages. And he said that the only bidder present who he chatted to who asked questions about football rather than 
legal or financial things with Ratcliffe and this was about two years ago and that he made a very positive impression. So yeah, only had good things to say. I think a lot of it is authentic to be fair. And even if it isn't fully authentic and if he's been told to say it, I always maintain I would rather, even if it's not fully authentic, I would rather someone at least trying to engage with supporters even if they have to kind of put it on a bit because it shows that they realise the importance of that, which is the opposite to to the Glazers. Um, But I do think most of it is authentic. Yeah, all all sounding good and exciting. And while I disagree with certain things, we can talk a little bit about Old Trafford. You just want to hear that ambition and and vision and and kind of, yeah, big vision of of things for the future. I referenced it a little bit last week and a few times since takeoffs happened. But again, the similarities between him and James Gibson from the 1930s are are mad. Like you compare the the two quotes that came out uh, from Ratcliffe now and from Gibson back in December 1931. Gibson said, I want to place Manchester United on a level with the great teams of the country. I want covered covered accommodation at Old Trafford. Ratcliffe said, uh, just the beginning of our journey to take United back to the top of English, European and world football with world-class facilities for our fans. Kind of the, the immediate mission or yeah, mission statement or goals is better facilities for fans and success. Two men promising the same things 92 years apart. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's strange. Were there any any concerns that you might have had reading some of the, the quotes? Yeah, a couple. I think the the answer on the women's team that you gave in the interview with The Athletic felt like a bit of a, a little bit of a throwaway. Didn't seem like it was something that he'd thought too much about. He just sort of said, if they're wearing a United shirt, they should be winning. And it didn't seem like he knew all too much about that. And there's, I think just the general concern, as we said, about how authentic and, and real is this. But, you know, I think you've got to give, I think coming in, I give him the benefit of the doubt. And and to be fair, I think his history helps with that. Like, I, I think I probably have, and I'm more willing to give him the benefit of the doubt than I would be if it was someone who came in and had no historical attachment to the club at all. You know, Jim Ratcliffe is far removed from the boy that grew up in, in Failsworth at this point. But I think that does help. And the fact that he grew up a United fan, it helps, I think, give me some confidence that he should get it at least to some degree. I think it, even if... Yeah, on. I think he does, the, the, he was he was chatting to this guy that I was speaking to about buying the football pink when he was a kid outside yeah. Old Trafford and coming with his dad. I think there is that, I think there is that genuine authenticity there what happened between the ages of like 15 and 71 yeah obviously exactly. yeah the cynic would say you're so rich you could easily have come to every United game why were your Chelsea seasons to get older but to be honest I'm not too bothered about that if over the next few years we see it's the best interest of the club at heart and yeah I do think they're not I don't think they're here for financial reasons which is which is what he's saying I think they're here to to see what they can do and he's a 71 year old man who's been very successful and now can really challenge himself which is what Ineos have been doing in the sporting sense for a long time there's also the aspect of greenwashing which has not yet been covered massively I think is a a valid thing to to raise also his his actions with trade unions also valid things to raise but um, um, in terms of Old Trafford, again, that's kind of where the big vision really was was coming across. And it's interesting, I thought his comments seemed to have, have turned the tide entirely on Old Trafford. Suddenly lots of people who favoured a renovation now wanting a new build, which I understand. But I do, I would say, bear in mind kind of why he's saying that or why it might happen. That The kind of the downside of a powerful single 
owner is that they can want to do things for themselves and have the power to do it. And that can be a great thing. John Henry Davies, the president from the early 1900s, wanted a legacy for for United and for himself. He built Old Trafford. It's an undoubted good thing. But at the time, United were moving further than any football league club ever had five miles across town and the old supporters from United and Newton Heath were very unhappy at that and they were left behind and they could no longer go to games. So it's, yeah, things can look very good in historically, but at the time they will piss fans off. And I think the Ratcliffe seems to want a physical legacy and quickly, which is great. The ambition is is fantastic, but I hope that the possibility of an, an improved, a renovated Old Trafford isn't just thrown out the window because he wants this physical legacy of, of his own. Because I, I still favour a, a renovated Old Trafford. I don't know if, if your opinions have, have changed over this week. I don't look badly on anyone who's saying that they do want a, a new Old Trafford completely redone, but I've been a bit surprised at how quickly that shift has happened this week. Like to me, yeah, exactly. to me it's quite simple to be honest. I want, I, I want the best stadium that we can possibly get for Man United. And that means both the sort of very tangible things like attendance, the, the facilities, how the stadium looks, the match day experience that fans get combined with the atmosphere that it generates, the history that it holds, the character that it has. And so it's a fine balance. Yeah. And, and basically the way I look at it is a new stadium, it, obviously it, it can generate its own history and character, but it's never immediately going to have its the history and the law that Old Trafford does. So for me, for a brand new stadium to be worth it, it has to be significantly better than what a renovated Old Trafford could be. And if it can do that, then I think that might make it worth it. But, and I understand that renovating Old Trafford, because of its location, there are a lot of limitations that that we have to work around. But like, if you offered me the choice of two fairly similar stadiums, one being brand new, maybe in the, in the middle of all the land that United own, versus a renovated Old Trafford in the same location, in the same building, but renovated and those two were fairly similar standard, I would go with the renovated Old Trafford every time. Yeah, it's a, we, we kind of, it was a point I was making last week. If you're going to build a new stadium, do it properly. Like yeah. 120,000 people. Again, all this talk of 90,000 just baffles me. That is, that's the attendance Sorry, that's the capacity that United should be at now if if we had carried on at the rate we were going, in, which stopped when the Glazers arrived. The, the last renovation proper kind of changes to Old Trafford were done in 2006, but though that project had begun before the Glazers took over and, and it, they just let it continue. United would be at 90,000 now. So you've got to be, you've, you have to future-proof it and blow every other European club out of the water. And it, I think that's basically Barcelona. Can you build it bigger than Barcelona? So... If the difference is, oh, we can have 120,000 in a new stadium and it'll be amazing, or we can have 85,000 at Old Trafford, that's where it becomes a much more difficult decision for me. Not that my opinion is going to change it, but that's when personally it becomes more of a harder kind of hypothetical to think about because anything, oh, an extra 35,000 people being able to come to the game every week, that is a, that's a, a proper decision. I was just saying, I think it's worth remembering that when the Glazers came in and this renovation of Old Trafford, the the expansion was finished to make it the capacity that it, it is, that it is now. At that time, Old Trafford was almost twenty five thousand bigger than any other stadium in the Premier League. Yeah, that gap now is more like twelve thirteen thousand because Old Trafford's capacity has been reduced a little bit to improve some accessibility access, and then also stadiums like Spurs and Arsenal being built, Anfield being expanded. Yeah, Old Trafford. Sh- should be at minimum, I would say, 
20 to 25,000 more than any other stadium in the Premier League. We are, we can fill that stadium every single week. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I think the current, or not the current plans, but the plans over the last few years that have been spoken about uh, in terms of renovations for the South Stand has been to build a new South Stand with uh, three tiers, but going straight up. So we spoke a bit about last week, if you could build over the railway line, that's my grand idea for, for Old Trafford is to have a station kind of running underneath the South Stand. But I think the plans have been to build straight up. Uh, and have a stand at Old Trafford, which they have at many other clubs where the lower tier is the roof of the second tier is over the lower tier, which you don't really have apart from at the very back of each stand at Old Trafford. Um, so yeah, that that could help get to 90,000. And then you need to widen the concourses and you need to create uh, Edward Wood's dream, Manchester United world around it. But, <laughs> yeah. So at least it's been spoken about. It's all, it's all positive. I hope it doesn't stop either. And I, I don't think it will. And, and, and to be fair, I, I think to the point you were saying before about, you know, we, I, this doesn't seem like Ratcliffe is here to make money. I completely agree. And I think this is testament to it because if he was here to put in as little money as he can and just make as much as he can on this investment, you would not be floating. And it seems like he is slightly favouring the option to build a brand new stadium. It's going to cost a billion pounds more than renovating Old Trafford. Yeah, some suggestion that he's, I haven't actually seen these quotes, that he's said a new build will only be possible with some external funding, uh, which makes sense. He's obviously been talking about government loans. We mentioned that a little bit last week and we can talk about that again in future. But um, And that if not, then it would have to be a renovation which would be fine by me. Cheaper. And uh, yeah, I'd love, I just, I'd be very sad to leave Old Trafford as I think many people would. I, I also just think in terms of the renovation versus new build thing, if you look at stadiums that have been like where clubs have moved, let's say Tottenham, Arsenal with Highbury and, and now Everton with Goodison Park going, they were stadiums where not only were the facilities not very good, but the actual sort of the bones and the foundations of those stadiums were very, very old. And like, if you imagine trying to rebuild Goodison Park, like Goodison Park was an ancient stadium in, in almost all ways. And it had a lot of charm because of that. But Old Trafford isn't like that. The actual, most of Old Trafford, the sort of structure itself is fairly modern, especially the design of it. And it's, yeah, it's, in fairness, I think a lot of the internal infrastructure is very old. It is yeah, effectively yeah, yeah, yeah. A, an Edwardian building. So yes, a lot of the stands have been, but like the piping and the wiring, which are obviously not the key issues for a football stadium, but they are important, uh, have apparently become a lot harder to manage and upkeep because of the, the neglect since the Glazers came in. So that is is one thing worth bearing in mind. But I, yeah, I agree. And the other point with those stadiums is Spurt White Hart Lane was, the, the, the contrast between the two is so enormous. Whereas yeah. for all Old Trafford's faults, it's still an incredible stadium. So no. I don't think the jump up will be quite as big. But yeah, we better move on unless there's anything anything urgent else. Guess the player clue two. Your first one was, I made my United debut age 17 in 1971. Your second clue is, I'm known as the last Busby babe. I'm known as the last Busby babe. Oh, okay. Any guesses or do you want to mull it over? All right. I, yeah, give me, I, I reckon I'll have a guess before the next clue. Okay. We're going to dive into an ad break for normal listeners and Patreon Q&A for our patrons. Time 
time for the Academy Briefing. The under-18s extended their league unbeaten run to 17 games with a 15th victory of the campaign, putting three past Middlesbrough at home in a confident performance. They managed to keep a clean sheet by having two goalkeepers on the pitch at once. Cameron Byrne-Hughes was forced to come on as an outfield player late on due to injury, which was a, a pretty incredible thing to see. United's goals came from James Scanlon, Ashton Misson and Ethan Wheatley. Misson's goal, United's second, was wonderful, beautiful footwork to dance past a couple of players and finishing to the bottom right corner certainly worth a watch last Monday United beat Manchester City 2-1 in Premier League 2 Tom Huddleston scored the winner which was incredible from the player coach and uh, yeah Toby Collier got his first involvement in a United matchday squad against Fulham he was an unused sub as you would have seen Collier is a, a midfielder who once captained England's youth sides he joined United from Brighton just after his 18th birthday in March 2022 he was born in January 2004 and has been a regular for the under 21s since he, he moves the ball well there was no involvement for any of the young fullbacks despite some predictions in the press Harry Amas is the 16 year old in the headlines he joined from Watford last summer he's doing really well in the under 18s for whom he played on Saturday but it's definitely too early for him to be involved in the first team he's not yet played for the under 21s even but he is in first team training more regularly now as is the other fullbacks, Habib Ogunyai, who grew up in Bolton, he's been at United since he was a kid, he used to sprint when he was younger and you can see that in his play, he's rapid and he can create a lot more often from right back than left back, very rarely play at left back. And the final option and the oldest is James Nolan, who did play at left back against Stockport County in the EFL Trophy, so could be a possibility at some point if, if needed. Coming up this week, the under-21s play Derby County at Lee Sports Village on Friday evening in Premier League 2, a 7pm kickoff, And the under-18s have a semi-final, the under-18 Premier League Cup semi-final at Carrington on Saturday morning, 11am kickoff, And both of those games will be shown live on MUTV if anyone wants to watch. Jack, just before we talk about Nottingham Forest quickly on Wednesday night, guess yeah, the player clue you. three. I'll text unless you Unless you want to give me a guess after the first two clues, which were, I made my United debut age 17 in 1971 and I'm known as the last Busby babe. So you're going to give me a clue, but I will read clue three for everyone else, which is, I captained Northern Ireland at the 1986 World Cup. I captained Northern Ireland at the 1986 World Cup and we'll reveal the answer right at the end of the show in about three or four minutes time. But first, Nottingham Forest on Wednesday, Jack. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not confident, but oh, it would be, so, be so good, so useful. Uh, a cup run is exactly what this team and, and the manager needs, just like in 1990 for, for Sir Alex. Yeah, I mean, speak about going back to this time last year and United playing in the Carabao Cup final. I mean, it was Forrest, who we played in the semi-final there too. Rashford and Vekhorst scored, in fact, didn't they? Vekhorst got his goal at... Uh, Surely not. Vekhorst doesn't score goals. <laughs> I, it's just, it's funny how things sort of seem like they come full circle to some degree because it feels like, despite being a much earlier stage of the competition, a very, very important game for our season. Like, I think if you... I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but if you win, sorry, if you lose against Forest and then go into the Manchester Derby next weekend, you talked about, you know, this doesn't feel like the end of the Ranić season where the life has sort of been sucked out of the players. I think it could yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. If you end up in a position where you're 11 points off the top four, all right, fifth might get you into the Champions League, but I think at that point we'd still be eight-ish, something like that, points off of Spurs if they win as well. Also, it's looking like fifth might not get in the Champions League as well. Yeah, it, it, I think we're still the favourites, but it, it got a bit closer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it like the season the season could quickly come off the rails, and I think there is a worry that these this group of players 
you know, they do, they seem to be a little bit more professional, I guess, than I think some past Man United squads, but there's still enough in here. Enough players have been part of teams like that in the past where you worry about the rest of the season becoming a real slog. And so I think this is a massively important I, game. I hope that, that protecting against that will be the fact that the new co-owners have come in and said very clearly, we're watching you. They had a meeting with United's players. I can't remember how long ago, but soon after after Christmas, which the players described as, as interesting because I think they've... I heard they basically went in. I imagine this was Dave Brailsford and, and a couple of others and said, we know what world-class looks like. We're going to be watching and seeing whether you're world-class. So they, they laid it out. I hope that the fact that there's kind of higher powers, even if Ten Hag's future isn't that certain, will make sure that that doesn't happen. But you're absolutely right. Defeat to Forest and then City would make it pretty hard for that not to happen. Forest, we won't talk about City yet, uh, but Forest, a couple of quick ones. Would you start? We've just been talking in the Patreon Q&A about what's needed short term to make this United team better. And your main point was keeping Rashford on the left and Garnacho on the right to make sure that they have as, as best a chance as possible of performing well. So with that in mind, would you start Ahmad after a bright substitute performance against against Fulham? Or would you put, as you suggested, Matomini up front and and have Rashford on the left and, and Garnacho on the right? I think I would go with McTominay. Honestly, I, I really do. As, as a striker who isn't going to look to run in behind really, but will just come to feet, try and receive the ball, link up the play and create some space in behind for Garnacho and Rashford. To me, that feels like our only reliable route to go is to get those two in behind and running at players. I, I don't think that will happen. And if it doesn't, and we're going to play Rashford up top, then yeah, I would want Ahmad on the right and Garnacho on the left. Yeah, agreed. I don't know which I'd prefer, but yeah, you just would, yeah. <laughs> Any confidence? I mean, I'm not, I'm not happy with the, with either option really, but I just think, as we said in the in the Patreon Q and I, I just think they're Garnacho and Rashford are the only two reliable goal threats that we have, and well, I'm, my I'm priority McTominay. without Hoyland in the, well and McTominay, yeah. But my my priority without Hoyland in the team would always be to to make sure that those two can be can maximise that goal threat as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We should be beating Forest. They're not in any kind of stunning form. They lost to Aston Villa this weekend. They did beat West Ham last week, but have. I think that's their only victory since since the third round of the FA Cup when they beat Blackpool on a replay. They they did beat Bristol City in, in the Cup, but on penalties after two draws. So on the other hand, we played them just about six weeks ago at the City Ground and, and were beaten in a pretty torrid performance. So that's And, and the City uh, the City Ground is is the kind of place where it's not the most raucous atmosphere United will will go to, but it's the kind of place where if you give Forrest a sniff, for a it, game, it yeah. will quickly ramp up and that's what we've done when we've played them even going back actually to the semi-final last year they had the goal from Awanyu that was ruled out for a really marginal yeah. offside and before Rashford went on that amazing solo run we did let them in the game far too much and we we let the crowd really get into it and we made it difficult for ourselves but I think if this is the kind of place if you go and you start fast and you control the game even if you don't manage to get an early goal I think you go a long way to winning the game yeah I was just running through kind of thoughts in my head and I was thinking, <laughs> I, I was wondering whether I was going to predict United to lose to Forest and beat City, but no, I'm not going to. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not confident we'll win either game. If this was if this was back in the Solskjaer days, I would be right there with you, but... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe with this kind of Ole style football that we've been playing, we will beat City, but I don't, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. I think we'll get beaten. I mean, we did, we did finally beat a top half side away from home against Villa. So I maybe go, this will we'll be it. I would lose to City 4-1. 
and confidently I'll go for a 3-2 win at Forest and it will be a it'll feel like a, a season changing moment and then we'll get spanked by City so to end on that positive <laughs> note we, we'll wrap things up but guess the player with the three clues I captain Northern Ireland at the 1986 World Cup I was the last possibly babe after making my debut age 17 in 1971 Jack reveal your guess and the answer my guess is Sammy McElroy absolutely Yes, Sammy Rackmore. Lovely man. Great United career. And yeah, the last Bosby babe and great for Northern Ireland. Then went into management. Managed Morecambe for six years, I think. Got them promoted at least once. I've got to say, I'm glad the Northern Ireland clue was, wasn't earlier because I, whenever I think of Northern Ireland and, and the Busby era, I just immediately think of Harry Gregg. I can't think of anyone else. <laughs> Lucky I didn't say 1958 yeah. <laughs> World Cup. Although Harry Gregg wasn't captain, but he did play. As would Jackie Blanchflower if he hadn't been injured in the Munich air disaster. And on on that note, because it's come up, I did a piece for United Review this week, which was about the aftermath of Munich, not on the clubs. Not Everyone knows about the FA Cup run after we beat Sheffield Wednesday and got to the final and were beaten there by Bolton. But what, what was the impact after Munich on the reserves and the A-team and... England and Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland and Ireland, which was fascinating to look at. And the, the kind of butterfly effect of it all is, is incredible because like Busby should have managed Scotland, but was too ill to do so. Scotland ended up finishing bottom, I think. Uh, yeah, Jackie Blanchfile can play for Northern Ireland because he was injured. Bobby Charlton wouldn't have been in that England squad, most likely. But Duncan Edwards and Tommy Taylor would have been and Roger Byrne. Uh, but also you get little things like United took Jack Crompton, who just joined Luton Town as chairman. Crompton, who was goalkeeper in United's 1948 cup winning team, took Crompton back to become trainer on kind of an emergency deal to work alongside Jimmy Murphy. The person that replaced him was a guy called Sid Owen, who was a player, a centre half. He stepped up to become player coach, then became a coach properly very soon after worked for Leeds for ages then joined United where having become this coach because of what happened after Munich then was a massive influence on Mark Hughes when he was coming through United's academy setup so yeah the, the whole butterfly effect of it is is amazing um, anyway that's a, a random note to end on and a more positive one than uh, yes us, us losing a couple of games anyway no, that's we'll lose all- 4-1 to see <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just remind everyone. For more from you throughout the week, Jack, where can people find you on Twitter? At UTD Tate, C A I T. And you can find me at Harry Robinson64 on the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Have a great week, despite United's failings at the weekend. Have a good week. Goodbye. Network.